0: This was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again.
1: I feel like we got top, top, top.
0: I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt.
1: $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability. Which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability, that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your Value Builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. Takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. If you're looking for a little inspiration these days, look no further than Adam Oxtein. Adam started a company called Stratix, which was in the business of providing HR software. He sold that company to Toast, one of the fastest growing businesses in the restaurant category. They sell POS software to restaurants. What's really fascinating about Adam's story is how he started his first business, which was immediately following 9-11. And he started his second business, which was the business that he sold to Toast, Coming out of the depths of the 2008 recession, and through tremendous adversity and almost the necessity, he was able to pivot in both cases and create successful a successful business, which went on to get acquired in 2019. So, if you're looking for again a little bit of a silver lining these days. What some of this economic turmoil will do is force you to make really tough decisions. In good times, it's easy to carry a bit of extra fat, a few extra business lines, maybe some people that aren't really fully optimized, but in difficult times, It really forces us to make really tough decisions and go into a business that we know we can compete. And that's exactly what Oxtein did. I want you to listen very carefully for how he structured his partnership with Toast. And for me, that's really where the tremendous insight is in this structured his deal with toast so that they had an option to buy him i don't want to go through all the details but i think it was a brilliant stroke here to tell you the rest of the story is adam oxtein alec oxtein welcome to built to sell radio
0: thank you where are you located right now i am in uh about an hour and a half outside of chicago and um South, um, Southwest Michigan.
1: And, and hold up like the rest of us in this COVID-19 crisis. Absolutely. Tell me about this company. I understand that you started it in a crisis of sorts. Tell me about the, the Genesis, how you became about how, how it came about.
0: Yeah. So I, you know, we, we pivoted a a handful of times. Um, so I guess, you know, Good lesson for an entrepreneur is don't be so stuck in your ways when when the winds winds change with you. So we started StratX um, In the summer of 2001 and right when the dot com was turning into the dot bomb and all the tech startups were uh, imploding. uh, We started StratX as a sales consultancy working with uh, venture backed tech startups that um, had a good, maybe a good product or business model, but bad sales execution. So, uh, right when we were getting a handful of our first customers, I was actually based in New York um, and up in Boston, uh, kicking off a new client engagement uh, right when 9 uh, 11, um, uh, the planes at the World Trade Center at 9 11. And, you know, uh, that's probably the closest I've, I've felt to what we're going through uh, this week and now with the uh, coronavirus uh, fear pandemic was not really understanding uh, what was gonna occur next and was our world permanently changed? And you know the lesson I learned there, not in, and, and really understanding it at the time and understanding it now is that if you have belief in what you're doing in your business model, you see it through and you stay focused, and you also, uh, you know, just head down and, 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 and work through any, anything because hard work will always pay off. How did you deal with the practical
1: realities of things like cash flow? Because I'm, I'm assuming these venture back startups after 9-11 are, are not paying their bills. They're certainly not engaging yeah. a lot of, a lot of uh, sales consultancies.
0: Yeah, it, it was definitely a challenge. Um, you know, we were fortunate enough that we were still small enough that it was we were just funding a handful of our salaries with a and a handful of consultants, and it was it was it was challenging to um, uh, fund, but we um, but we were able just to be really thoughtful on how we uh, how we preserve cash, as as most business owners know, no cash is king. Uh, he who has the gold makes the rolls, so you hold on to your cash as long as you can
1: <laughs> that is a well said statement these days for sure so you're doing sales consulting uh how does the business model evolve uh over time i'm I'm curious to know what it was when you when you kind of yeah. came into two thousand
0: eight yeah so it's it's you know we when we were doing sales consulting what we Back in 2001, 2002, we were doing mostly of our, most of our clients were were selling enterprise software. So the first thing we would tell the sales team when we met with them is you look at a company's annual report and the letter uh, to the shareholders from the CEO always had a handful of business objectives in there that this is what we're gonna do this year. And, you know, CEOs look to really do two things. One is take advantage of market opportunity. Um, and also mitigate risk associated with things that might be occurring from the outside. So it seemed like eight out of 10 annual reports we are reading at the time, uh, the CEO talked about outsourcing non-critical business processes. Mm. It's like the catchphrase at the time. And right in the crosshairs with those two things were uh, IT and HR. Uh, those are the two non-critical business processes that Companies are looking outsource. So, if you're McDonald's or, or Burger King or Chase, you're in the business of flipping burgers or, or or having bank branches. Not a matter of having IT departments or HR. So, when we looked at you know that the, when we looked at you know at the business model as we evolved it, it was we were doing sales consulting, um, and I also in the back of my head when we started the company knew. That recurring revenue, uh, subscription-based business, uh, was the gift that keeps on giving. If you can grow your customer base, take care of them, uh, service them at a decent margin, um, you know that recurring revenue was was really what makes business sustainable to the point where you have some type of exit someday because the business isn't tied to Adam or John or Joe who started it and you know, these customers are my customers. It's a recurring revenue, it's a subscription-based business. I knew nothing about HR, um, but I did know that um, it was a, a, what starts usually an enterprise trickles down to mid-market into SMB. So when we I moved to Chicago for personal reasons, knowing full well that there weren't a lot of tech startups in Chicago in 2002, we moved here early oh three, which was, the, the real reason why I you know, pivoted the business model a bit because I was living out of a plane, traveling back and forth to our clients in New York, Boston, and DC market. Um, so when we pivoted the business, realized that Chicago had a lot of small businesses um, and figured if we can offer an HR solution, subscription-based for a small business that doesn't have an HR department um, it would be a good business model. And so without knowing even how to spell HR <laughs> at the time, um, kind of like, you know, learn learned as we, you know, fake it till you make it type of thing. Um, and initially was licensing third-party software and made the decision in 2007 of uh, what the heck, I can build better software than the stuff we're licensing. And there's not anything good in the market. So, bootstrapped it again, and decided to build our own software application and 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 launch the new software in late two thousand eight two thousand nine, which was a really good time. So, my, my you are a glutton for punishment, man. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, if you you know the lesson is, uh, if you want to start a business, don't start a business when Adam Oxstein is starting a business. <laughs> and don't pivot a business when Adam Oxstein pivots a business. Because, it's usually a bellwether for bad things to come. Right. Are you starting anything right now? I just sold my company, basically. <laughs> so, you know, maybe don't sell a company in the middle of before, you know, in six months after you sell your company, Adam sells his company, there's going to be, you know, the world's going to turn upside down again. So, yeah. Nice um, time to be in cash for sure. Yes. So, that actually, you know, is a, I think a good lesson is. the opportunity created out of crisis, right? So what we provide was HR software at a time when in 2008, 2009, organizations were being asked to do more with less. So I might've been a 150, 200 person organization that had a full-time HR manager with an HR admin. And the CEO was coming to the HR manager saying, hey, we can't afford to keep the two-person HR department, I need you doing, you know, more with, with, I'm going to ask you to get rid of your HR admin. And the software became a nice selling vehicle to automate a lot of the administrative burden that HR was dealing with. So we were able to come in and say, if you, you can reduce your HR team and do a lot of the administrative functions that your admin was dealing with, through automation and self-service.
1: So what was the product itself? Like we use, uh,
0: I think it's called Bamboo HR. Do you know those guys? Would they be a competitor of yours? Yeah, Bamboo HR I believe came out in 2009, 2010 and didn't have a payroll. Uh, Bamboo didn't have a payroll part of their product until much later, but uh, you know, StratX provided HR uh, software, employee lifecycle management, so from recruitment all the way through termination and Cobra, inclusive onboarding and yeah. policies and uh, benefit administration, benefit management, time and attendance, performance reviews, payroll, discipline right. tracking, all the way through termination. So, so here's the
1: thing: I, I'd be curious to know why you considered this a pivot as opposed to a like basically a brand new business. Like, there's nothing, at least from a layperson or at least on the outside, I don't see anything a sales consultancy would have in common with an
0: HR software? Well, Why no, not no. just call them different businesses? Well, because I like the name StratX, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's brand new it. So I pretty much winded down the old one and started the new one with the same name, so. Okay,
1: and and what? H- how did you make that decision to wind down, because again, I, th- I think literally this is very timely. I think there's a lot of business owners right now saying like, do I need to wind this up entirely and go in a completely different direction and basically take nothing with me? Or am I better off just trimming a couple of things and kind of doubling down on my strategy? So how did you come to the decision to get to exit completely out of the sales consulting business? It was,
0: it was, really a situation where, you know, we had probably 14, 15 consultants at the peak when we made this decision on our payroll. And um, I was living in Chicago servicing clients on the East Coast. Um, my wife was pregnant with our first born and I literally, we moved to Chicago for family and I was living out of a plane you know I have a suitcase and spending four days a week in either New York or Boston, and I said this is silly that we moved halfway across the country to be with family to raise a family, and I'm going to be away from my family eighty percent of the work week and you know sixty percent of the of the calendar week
1: I get that, but why not just do sales consulting in Chicago like there's lots of companies in Chicago you could do sales consulting for
0: yeah, but there was i mean we were we were we were a niche. So we're focused on venture-backed tech companies at the time. Uh, the tech community in Chicago it didn't really blossom yet. Okay. So it was, you know, Chicago, Midwest was flyover. It was, you know, you're either on the, one of the two coasts or maybe Denver. So, um, you know, it, it, it and, and, and the second and probably the bigger reason is I really wanted recurring revenue. And I found it uh, difficult to come up with a, a subscription-based model where we can do boutique consulting in a subscription-based way, and I'm and I'm sure there's other businesses that have scaled that. Um, I'm not a really good copywriter, so and I didn't really want to uh, write, you know, sit there and write copy all day long to build a subscription playbook to 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 sell to small any business from a from a sales consultancy perspective. Um, so I just basically reconstituted StratX with a subscription-based recurring model. Uh, And I'm looking at the marketplace of Chicago, which didn't have a bunch of tech, but Chicago is a very vibrant small business community, Mm -hmm. Uh, probably one of the most uh, entrepreneurial cities that I've ever lived in or been in. And so there's a ton of small businesses in Chicago. So I felt that that was a business model that lent itself to the marketplace that I was living in. Got it. How did you finance the development of the HR tool? Um, bootstrapped it through, um, you know, uh, revenue that we were generating from the business that I, that we already started, uh, my personal bank account. And then I, you know, um, took a second mortgage on my home, um, you know, so completely uh, bootstrapped it. Um, And
1: who's the we, are you the 100% shareholder or did you have founders, co-founders in
0: the business? Uh, I did have uh, some co-founders in the business who were limited partners. And then when we decided to build the software, uh, initially it was through a a consultant who ended up becoming my uh, 50-50 business partner when we turned you know, when turn the service company into a software company. And we used to have the debate all the time. it was it was it was funny because we're on opposite sides of the debate, and you would think that we would be arguing different positions. You know we'd have the argument, are you a service company or a software company? He Sammy, my business partner, who was the software developer, would say we're a service company, and I would argue that we're a software company. And um, I think we're we're both probably right. Um, but, um, when it came to valuation, he'll probably tell you that it's better than I won the, uh, the slight argument. It's <laughs> company. What's the, so what's,
1: what's the difference? Take me inside that debate between you and Sammy. Like, what
0: would you guys be arguing? I would, I would argue that, you know, he would argue that we're a people, we're a people first business and we're in the business of servicing other businesses. And what separates us is the quality of people we have working for us servicing those customers. And I would argue that I prefer to have software automate everything where I didn't have to have ever have to speak to, or my team speak to another human being and that <laughs> we can, we can print money without having to um, uh, hire more people. How much of your revenue was from service versus software? Well, we, we sold it as a SaaS business. So software is, so it, you know, I guess that we're both right as software as a service. Mm-hmm. So we charged, uh, per employee per month uh, for, for the software application. And that was encompassing uh, not only the software platform, but also the, the uh, people. And then we started to split it out. So towards the end, it was probably, there was two lines of business. 70% was software and 30% was service because we had HR consultants that we would sell as an ad. Initially it was bundled and eventually we, We broke it off and said, okay, you want to just buy our software and license it on a per-seat basis? Or do you want an and or do you want have an HR consultant who is, you know, PHR certified and and they can be like, you know, your outsourced consultant working with your organization? Um, So we had those different lines of business, and that was probably 70 software revenue and 30%. Uh, the people part of it what triggered what triggered your decision to separate out the uh, the service component um when we started to move up market a bit what when we built the software, initially before we built the software application the business model was i want to walk into an organization and say who handles hr and have three or four people pointing at each other and say that's their job um and then when we built the software application, we did such a nice job building it, uh, that it automated so much that it allowed us to move up market to organizations that had three, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred employees, and even bigger than that. And there was already a, an HR team in place. So the last thing we wanted to do is come in and say uh, buy our software. And by the way, we, your company doesn't need your entire HR team, but you should go ahead and move forward with us. So uh, I, I don't think an HR person would, would make that decision to move forward with us. So we decided to break it out and say, use the software to run your organization, Mr. Mr. And Mrs. Uh, HR, and your team would be better off situated. If, if they, if they use it, your people will be happier. Um, and uh um uh that's why we split it out. Got it, got it. That's helpful for sure. How did you sell it? What was
1: your approach to selling it? This is from a, a sales guy who's done a lot of work
0: selling and consulting for SaaS-based companies. What was your sales model for Stratix? And and initially, since we were all bootstrapped, and this is some of the mistakes we made along the way, it was through uh, you know. Uh, 100% distribution model um, what does that I, mean we didn't have any direct sales team initially um you're speaking to the only salesperson that was in the company probably for 10 years um and so i would go through you know 08, 09, also with obamacare passing you had uh, all the benefit brokers were scared that their pot of gold you know that some version of obamacare was going to move like canada where it's going to be nationalized healthcare and this whole model where I actually get commissions based on you know, employer-based benefits was going to just put all these guys out of business. Um, so we distributed through regional benefit brokers who wanted to have another product, another reason to go into HR and make themselves sticky. So our big distribution for a handful of years was through regional benefit brokers that took the product and brought it to their customers to automate open enrollment and benefits to help them manage their HR and blah, 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 but also gave them, we did a rev share. It gave them more revenue for those customers that potentially would have offset reduction in fees and commissions had, you know, the need for, for healthcare premiums gone away. Um, so we did that. Um, and then we realized that, We didn't really control our own destiny by selling through uh, Channel Partner. So, and we started to make some money then. Um, And we decided to hire a, you know, a tiger team type sales team. We had at the time probably 65, 70 employees. And we decided, okay, and they were all in service, servicing customers, implementation, or software development. Um, And then we decided to hire like an eight to 10, Salesperson team, um, have someone manage our channel partnership, these regional benefit brokers, and then have a direct sales team that would go out and cold call and prospect businesses and sell direct. And what we did it was kind of interesting: is we gave I gave each different sales rep a different vertical to focus on and come up with a vertical play to say, okay, you're selling to manufacturing, you're selling to uh, mortgage and real estate industry, you're selling to distribution, you're selling to hospitality and restaurants, you're selling to different verticals. And we had, you know, our current client mix was all, all across the board across different verticals. Um, but what a lot of those organizations had in common based on what the software did was a federated or distributed organization where I didn't, necessarily have everyone working out of one location. I had people distributed across multiple, maybe maybe it's eight to 10 uh, branches of a mortgage bank or eight to 10 restaurants or eight to 10 hotels. We had corporate HR that was dealing with paperwork and how do I automate the stream of new hires, terms, requests for time off, pay changes, all the different things, all those transactions that occur within that employee life cycle. How do we automate that in a paper-free way? And where I couldn't walk it down to the payroll manager's office or the HR office, I actually was across the country. And that obviously sounds commonplace today, but 10, 12 years ago, that was a differentiator for us to come in in that distributed workforce and say, software can automate a lot of that manual process. Um, and so the sales reps that were doing the best of all my sales reps and maybe it was some luck, but I don't think it was were the, were the ones I gave the vertical for restaurant retail and hmm. hospitality. So, um, we had, we got more traction and more business and a higher close rate within that part of the vertical than any other vertical. And our current customer base that was representative of a restaurant and hospitality were our happiest customers. Hmm. Um, so this was also at a time when big payroll was starting to wake up and start to build HR systems. And if you look at you know, our biggest competitor, obviously ADP from a payroll perspective, I would wish I would have done, had the foresight to take a picture of their uh, snapshot, screenshot of their website from 2004, 2005 when we first started at every year, all the way up to like 2012 or 2013, it would have been payroll, And then like maybe around 2006, 2007, you'd see little snippets of information around HR. By 2010, 11, it was HR and payroll. And now you go to their website, it's all HR with, (laughs) and by the way, we do payroll. So, which is, I'm bringing bringing that up. The reason I'm bringing that up is as big as our sales team could have gotten, you know, and I could have went out and raised hundreds of millions of dollars. We never would have been able to replicate the sales army that these big payroll organizations already had that -hmm. were now coming into our space. So we decided in 2013 to get highly vertically focused and say that we're going to be the absolute best software and uh, HR payroll software provider for restaurant and hospitality. And so we got highly vertically focused and decided to, um, you know, our direct sales team was mandated that they're only allowed to go after uh, HR and payroll. That was, as long as there was a point of sale or, or uh, a, a um, property management system, PMS, they could sell it. But if there wasn't a POS or PMS on-premise, they weren't allowed to sell to those types of customers more. So we went all in on the vertical, realizing that in the restaurant sector, there's close to... 15 to six, no, not today, but uh, a, a month ago, uh, 15 to 16 million people that uh, worked in the restaurant sector um, throughout the United States. So it was a huge, huge vertical to focus on. We had no internal competition, uh, you know, external competition that we're, were exclusively focused on that vertical and allowed us to then start to um, you know, uh, carve out a niche for ourselves in a pretty big niche and then create some strategic partnerships with other vendors that did things that were tangential to us and create some synergy
1: What did you do with the other customers who were using and paying for the software outside of restaurants when you, when you decided to to triple down on restaurants? Did you, did you retire those customers? Did you just keep them and not service them? Like, how did you, how'd you handle
0: it? We, we continue to, and to this day, we have probably 10, 15% of our customer base uh, being non-restaurant hospitality. Okay. Um, and, you know, they, they still have challenges around hiring people, terminating people, paying people, managing all those things through the life cycle. It's just that our product roadmap is the product gets, you know, became more and more focused on the u- unique nuances and challenges that a restaurant might face. Versus a mortgage company or a manufacturer. Got it. That makes that makes complete sense. And how did you?
1: You know, here we are again. We're recording this in March of two thousand twenty, when you know ninety percent of the workforce in the restaurant business has been suspended or or furloughed or uh, laid off. However you want to describe it. How did you think through? de-risking that decision at the time. No one, of course, could have foreseen this pandemic, but was that a discussion internally about you know doubling down on restaurants at the time when you did it? Did, did you consider the, the potential risk that was associated
0: with that? The only risk that we saw um, de- potentially de-risking would be if we had a really big recession again where the buying behaviors of consumers went away from the trend that we were seeing which was you know 15 years ago it was a treat to take your family out for dinner Uh, at least when I was a kid it was like you know we're going out for dinner it's like once every two weeks right Right. Um, to maybe 10-15 years ago it was you know maybe once or twice a week And then it was, you know, take, you know, she commercials with the husband or wife on the way home from work, stopping at a place to pick up food. Uh, The trend we were seeing was the, you know, the exact opposite was, you know, 60, 70% of meals now were prepared outside the home and either being delivered or picked up or actually eaten outside the home. So the risk that we saw was, is there gonna be a big enough recession or depression again like 08, 09, where those behaviors start to trend down and restaurants start to close. The other concern we had around it from a risk perspective was our pricing model is per employee per month. And we were always concerned about uh, automation, robotics, and things that restaurants can do to drive down headcount within the restaurant. So we were even contemplating moving away from a per employee per month fee model to more a per location per month Model, so it wouldn't really matter whether I had 60 employees or 30 employees, I still needed to use the software to manage the function within those, my restaurant. Got it,
1: okay, that's helpful. So how, how were you thinking about valuation for this company? As you grew and you saw other SaaS companies, I'm sure, did, did you start to have a sense of what, what the business might be worth?
0: Yeah, I mean, we 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 spoke to a handful of investment bankers. You know, we uh, I, I spoke to colleagues that I know that that had SaaS businesses, and you'd see some of these crazy valuations of, you know, unprofitable companies that are getting you know fifteen times trailing twelve revenue, ARR. Um, you know, we were profitable at the time, and you know, no one really cared about EBITDA or profit. It was all around you know, gross margin for the business, uh, you know, CAC or customer, you know, your acquisition cost, and then Mm -hmm. LTV or lifetime value of that customer in a SaaS business are really the two metrics that people really look at is, you know, what's your acquisition cost to get new customers compared to the lifetime value of those customers. So where we made mistakes along the way, I think were a couple fold. One is, we didn't we didn't grow as fast as we should have grown in terms. We should have taken outside, you know, venture capital money to scale the business um, with sales and marketing, and you know, and grow as fastly as possible, irrespective of profitability. Secondly, we didn't pay enough attention to uh, churn and MPS. Uh, as What's we MPS stand for? A net promoter score. Oh, NPS, right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, you know, how like you know, you get those questions. How likely to refer your, uh, you know, them to another business? One to scale that one to 10. And net promoter score, and NPS says that if you're a nine or a 10, um, that's a positive number. Uh, one through six is a detractor. Um, and uh, seven and eight are neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a New Yorker, so to me, eight's positive, but I don't necessarily. <laughs> Does't that way. I've never give anyone a ten, so um you know so but but you know we we didn't we had a high we had a high customer retention, but we didn't do a good enough job of um really getting arms around churn and understanding why customers churned and stopping churn um which Um, And our our retention of our customer base was really solid, better than the industry average, but we needed to be probably, you know, in hindsight, more ruthlessly focused on when we lost a customer, doing a lot of detailed analysis of why they left and making sure that we didn't make the same mistake with that type of customer again, taking on those types of customers and then doing analysis of the customers that gave us a nine or 10 that were really happy. Why were they really happy, and how do we, how do we scale that happiness across the rest of our customers? What was your churn rate on an annual basis? Um, if you take out, you know, because a good, re- I mean, we were going after multi-unit restaurants. A good restaurant's going to open up more restaurants. So, if you normalize how many, and we also, were, if you normalize how many, you know, from a per, lo- these amount of locations were using us. In January of twenty nineteen, how many of those same customers were with us in December of twenty nineteen by a logo perspective uh, we were at ninety five percent retentions we have we have you know five percent churn um, which is is good for the industry a, a typical payroll big payroll company will um, churn twelve to fifteen percent of their base annually. So that every eight years they have to uh, basically, you know, start the engine all over again. Whereas our 5% churn, we, you know, we had 20 years with those customers. So, um, you know, but, but, but still we could have done a better job of uh, scaling our sales and marketing uh, and not being so focused on profitability, which sounds silly, but that's really the, that's really the thing that matters with SaaS businesses. it. And then uh, you're uh, really being focused on almost zero churn and MPS being really high.
1: So you you you'd seen these case studies of these crazy multiples, you know, get fifteen times training twelve. Did you have a sense then if it wasn't fifteen, like what you thought maybe you guys
0: could get for it? Uh, yeah, we were we were benchmarking to get. Um, you know, we, we felt that a fair valuation for us in a non-bidding situation would be in a four to six, four to seven times trailing 12. Um, trailing 12 months revenue. Yeah. Got it. And
1: so what triggered you to think about selling? Um, the
0: I knew that my, my oldest son, who's going to be 16 in a couple of weeks at the time, I always used to tease him that when you graduate college, you're not going to be in the family business, or at least not this business. Um, because I knew when I were building the company, we were building it building it to sell. We really were. Um, you know, when you build a subscription business, you know, that's hopefully your ultimate goal is to grow it and to sell it. Um, and I don't know if the time was right. But I knew that the we ended up partnering with Toast. We we look when we got we got in the in the in the restaurant sector, and we we were we were looking to partner with all the point of sale providers because you think of the two big systems a restaurant needs to run. You know, they're using their point of sale for managers for employees to key in orders. Uh, From typically, they're punching in and out of a POS. Um, and, you know, restaurants, their magic metric is, uh, you know, uh, you know revenue per, you know, revenue per employee or, uh, you know, uh, you know, dollars per hour work, you know, they, and they wanna always be at like, you know, dollars per labor, uh, revenue per labor. So they wanna always be like sub 20% of labor cost burden. So measuring those metrics were always important to a restaurant. So we wanted to partner with modern point of sale providers so then we become system of record to hire an employee. So the manager who's busy doesn't have to key in that all that employee data. I just hired Adam Oxstein and now I have to get him hired in the point of sale. And then taking all the punch data from the POS and, and having to download it and upload it to a payroll system was also cumbersome. So we were looking to create strategic partnerships with point of sale providers where we created that tight integration and we did that with Toast, and Toast was growing at a really—they were the fastest-growing, modern, uh, point-of-sale provider. And we created a partnership with them. Um, they did wanted—they ended up white-labeling our software, and you know we negotiated into our partnership, um, which I necessarily didn't want to do, but I also knew that it was the best chance of, you know, them being our proper exit for us would be if we negotiated in a, a purchase option within our partnership agreement, which was probably the stickiest part of our negotiation was how do we come up with something that is fair without knowing, you know, it, it, you know, think of, you put in their perspective, you, I put myself in their shoes, we create this partnership and they're wildly successful with it. And, Four years later, they have 10,000 customers using our software and they say, okay, well, we want to buy you now. And we say, well, here's the price. You have to pay 50 times, right? Because we have all the leverage. Um, Conversely, I didn't want to undersell what I felt the company would be worth. So we came up with some crazy formula of, if you represent X amount of our revenue and we can do all these different things and then you know, all these different levers were, were, were hit, here's the range of what the purchase would be. So we actually pre-negotiated the purchase price range at the, begin, at the outset of the partnership. And the reason why I was comfortable doing it is because I really felt, I love the culture of their company I loved what they were doing in the space. They're the fastest growing company in the space. And I felt that if I could provide the perfect rocket fuel for my baby, this would be the perfect exit that I, I would know that it would have lost lasting legacy to be part of the toast ecosystem, was a place that I wasn't selling out to a competitor. I wasn't just selling out to sell out. I was taking what we built. What they were building and making a really, really cool product.
1: Who was the one that uh, initially suggested that the partnership include some sort of acquisition offer?
0: Um, it was me. Um, I, I, I brought that up with them to pre handle what I knew would be either A, ugly downstream, or, or, or B, if they were looking at us and, and some of our competitors. Um, we were the only one that I knew were restaurant centric. So I felt we were, we had the best chance of creating a partnership, but I also want to let them know that, um, I was serious about the fact that forget about white label. I truly believe that whoever's going to win in the space is going to have a, you know, a single platform to service the restaurant community. And felt that um, you know I was putting my 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 money where my mouth was by speaking first, and you know
1: and was it a pro quo in the sense that if if you had wanted to buy toast, were you given that option with the same valuation metric
0: um, in my wildest dreams, we would get big enough to buy them um, you know they're a little they're a little bit bigger than us. Uh,
1: <laughs> Equally, were were did, did did the agreement where they had the rights to buy you the option to buy you at a pre pre established range was did that preclude them from buying one of your competitors? Yes, yeah. We, it did. we
0: had a um, you know um, there was like a breakup period of time where like I think wind down of the partnership fell apart and they were unhappy. They they had to wait like a. Uh, you know, 18 months or two uh, two or three, I forgot what the length of time was, but there was enough time that would make it pretty challenging for them to do that. So there was a pre-existing
1: range of value based on, I'm assuming, a multiple of revenue, trailing 12 months?
0: Um, That plus how big of a chunk of our overall customer base they represented. Um you know, there's all in these different factors, and there's only different um, windows of time in which we could, we can, we can review it. And then after, I think, three or four years, the automatic trigger went away, and it just would revert to, or convert to a standard partnership agreement. Got it. Okay, fascinating. And so they
1: had the rights to trigger it, but you did not. Correct. And that right was tied to a date or a set of dates.
0: Yeah, like I think every there was a measurement period every six months if they were hitting certain thresholds, we were hitting certain thresholds, we could review it. And obviously it was in my best interest to wait as long as possible because the longer sure. it goes, the higher the valuation and we become, it, it becomes. Um, I think, and I know, going into it they were probably Looking at it and saying, if this proof, proof of concept pays off before the the train leaves the station, and becomes runaway and becomes too high of a valuation, let's buy it. There's that balance of we know this works d- by de-risking it that way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, and then, you know, the, who knows what would have happened. You know, like we talked about de-risking before of the pandemic. You know, part of part of my deal is, is an earnout. So um I would tell your listeners always when you're when you're negotiating to sell your company, most of the time it's going to have an earnout where you have to stick around for a period of time, you have to hit certain thresholds and measurements. Um have an act of god <laughs> uh clause in there or some type of something else that would uh uh help. If something like this, God forbid, ever happens again, what's happening in our world.
1: Did you have an active God No clause?
0: No. <laughs> no.
1: So what chunk of your deal is at risk? Um, a big chunk, like more than half. No, no. Uh, a third, a third, but enough to make it meaningful. Yeah. And do you have the time to recover or is the urnat time-based? Do you know
0: what I mean by that? Like you've got to hit a certain threshold or you. Um, it a is date. I, I will have time, but, um, you know, some of it will be will, will go away because, um, you know, the first measurement period is on the first year anniversary, which is July yeah. of this year. I'll be yeah. Out of the well, we won't be out of the hell storm by then.
1: No. How was. Well, forgive me, your partner is Sam or Sammy? Sammy. Sammy, what was his role in negotiating this partnership agreement? Was he on board with the sale uh, chunk? It sounds like you initiated that, but was that something that he thought was a good idea? Or where yeah. Where you guys out on that?
0: Yeah, he, he was, you know, he, he, typical software developer, um, highly entrepreneurial, I think he was—he was ready for—he was ready for his next challenge to build his next company, um, and you know we—we've we, gotten along well enough that, um, you know, when I—I I don't want to be a one-hit wonder. I'd love to be able to say that at some point in the future, when I've when I've done everything I can do to help transition StratX over to Toast and fully integrate the companies, and my earnout is complete and. I've done a lot hopefully a lot of good work for for toast um, sometime in the not too distant future whenever that is i'd love to st- do another startup and if it's software enabled business which i'm sure it would be i would love to be you know uh, doing business with sammy again and take all the lessons we learned this time and not make those mistakes but clearly make some different ones but not <laughs> make some new ones together well i, I appreciate you sharing the story and i got it I, I must
1: confess we've done now almost 300 episodes and i don't think i've ever heard something quite as unique as the the partnership uh uh agreement you struck with toast so i think that's a really uh really thought-provoking thing for a lot of our listeners so i'm grateful for you sharing it yeah. where could people um if people want to reach out, I mean, do you, want to, do you want to send them to the Toast website to learn a little bit more if they're in the restaurant industry? Yeah. Do you accept sort of LinkedIn requests? What's the best way for people to kind of if reach
0: out? If it's Toast related, go to the Toast website. If it's uh, learning more about my trials and tribulations or life lessons, they can reach me via LinkedIn or, um, you know, uh, Adam, O-C-H-S-T-E-I-N great and we'll put put your name and it's got a unique spelling uh,
1: in the show notes so so you can uh, people can catch up with you in linkedin um i really appreciate you spending the time with us under such difficult circumstances
0: (laughs) thank you thanks again bye-bye Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warrilow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog.